Turn to John 18, continuing with uh, Jesus before the powers, so to speak. Um, He's going to shift from uh, Annas over to meet with Pilate. John, as uh, you may have noticed, or will notice, uh, doesn't really deal with his trial before the Sanhedrin or before uh, Caiaphas. Okay, Uh, That's okay, since the other gospel writers have that. We know what happened there. Um, doesn't really matter in a sense of uh, why he did that, but tells us these things that uh, we don't have in other places. All right, verses uh, 28 through 38a. We're going to stop in the middle of a verse. And that's okay because those verses aren't original. That's many centuries later some guy put those in there. So we don't need to follow a complete verse. All right, where were we? 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. And Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves, and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was spoken, sorry, this was to fulfill uh, the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again. And called Jesus and said to him, Are you king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you without me, about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, So, you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would indeed open our eyes to understand the truth, to grasp it with our minds, as well as to believe it in our hearts. Enable us to entrust ourselves to Christ the King, that indeed we might dwell in His kingdom while forsaking all other kingdoms that call out to us. Help us to see and delight in the sufficiency and superiority, the supremacy of Christ and His kingdom over all the kingdoms of the world. And we ask this Uh, In his name, 
Amen. Are you enjoying the political season? Are, are you enjoying all of the debates? Are you looking forward to that moment when you can walk into that voting booth and put your little mark next to somebody's name? What's really going on? This is what's going on. Essentially, what we have is a process by which a large number of people, which grows smaller almost every week, praise God, um, (laughs) are inviting you to share their vision of what this country should be. In other words, uh, there are competing visions for our country. And so Barry Sanders has his version of what he thinks uh, we should do because of what he thinks the problems are. And then uh, Hillary has her version of what the problems are and what we th- she thinks we should be and so on down the line. That's really what's going on. Different kingdoms calling for your allegiance to be displayed in the voting booth. As we evaluate the various agendas that they lay out for us, I think we have to recognize that all of them are a version of an unattainable reality. All of them. One of the things that we, I think, have to keep in mind is that in many ways... These very earthly kingdoms call us to sacrifice for their vision of what we should be. There's someone different. His name is Jesus. And how he approaches this is very different than how they approach this. For we see that Jesus came to call us into his glorious kingdom, and that's really what's going on in this passage. But it stands in stark contrast to the kingdoms that he's opposing in this passage. This is not just about the king and his kingdom, but also the rivals that call for our allegiance. And so we see first off that earthly kingdoms fight for power. We see in the historical context here, what's going on is you have an occupied nation, Israel. They are occupied by Rome, who is represented by Pilate, the governor, who was sent to rule over them on behalf of Caesar, way back in Rome. Pilate's interest is to further the cause of the kingdom, the empire of Rome. And so in order to do that, what he tends to do is to lord it over Israel. They must come in compliance to the decrees of Rome and of Pilate. And one of the things we learn about Pilate, when we look at Josephus and Tacitus, who was another historian of the day, is that Pilate was a rather, this is the picture we get anyway, a rather insecure kind of fellow. 
And so as a rather insecure kind of fellow, he was prone to overreact to the things. He liked, liked to make blustery shows to prove that he had power, as if you know the fact that he represented Rome wasn't enough. And so he sort of wants to keep the Jewish leaders in their place because they represent a different kingdom, one that has different values and different goals than Pilate has, than Caesar has. And so there is a struggle of two kingdoms that's taking place around Jesus. And kind of caught in between all of this are the ordinary people. They have Rome lording it over them, but they also, in many instances, have the Jewish leaders lording it over them. And so these poor people, in many instances, are at the mercies of these two kingdoms who cry out for their allegiances, for their respect and their authority. We see, I think, as we go through this, that in many ways the Jewish kingdom was intended to be the kingdom of God, but as we see here is that it's essentially been co-opted by these leaders to serve not God's purposes, but to serve their own purposes as we go through this. This takes, this takes place, of course, during the Passover feast, not just the Passover meal. So the the celebration, the feast of Passover would take course over the course of a week. And one of the things that we see is that you are, if you are ceremonially unclean, you are prohibited for, from partaking in the Passover. And I erred and when I assigned the reading from Numbers 9 to Mark. I should have added a couple more verses in there okay, that indicated that they were to celebrate the Passover at a later date. There's like a second Passover for all of those people who happen to be ceremonially unclean by virtue of having touched a dead body. Okay, Then there was going to be a second Passover for them. So let's have that in mind. That's how God had made an accommodation for the inevitable realities for the good of His people. Okay, That they could still partake of the Passover even if it wasn't at that particular moment. And so here we have these Jewish officials who, as we saw from the account in Matthew, have somehow decided that Jesus, well, we know why, but they've decided that Jesus is not really the Son of God, that he's actually blaspheming. They've beaten him, okay? So they might have blood on their hands if they're the ones who actually beat him which would make them ceremonially unclean, okay? So anyway, they, they, they are dropping off Jesus at Pilate's palace, the praetorium. Pilate didn't usually stay in Jerusalem. He usually stayed in another city, but because of the great feast and because his presence would be required, in part to make sure the crowds didn't get out of control, because remember, the population swelled in Jerusalem to over a million people during the course of a Passover feast because it was required that all the Jews would show up for the Passover feast. And so they didn't want to become unclean by entering into his palace. And so they stood outside and it's like, 
you know, those old, those movies where they don't want to go into the hospital because that incriminates them and they just throw the body. Uh, this Basically, they're dropping Jesus off, tossing him into the hands of the Romans, so to speak, the, so they don't get themselves ceremonially unclean. There's something here that should rub us the wrong way. Their hypocrisy should become evident to us rather quickly. As Jesus said, it is not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of a man that defiles him. And what has come out of these men is their hatred. Their deceit as they brought false witness upon false witness to to testify against Jesus. Their injustice, which fills their hearts and has poured out. They're not concerned about this, but they are concerned about ritual purity. Because they want to celebrate the Passover. What are they basing this on? They're basing this upon the Mishnah. In Ohol 18.7 it says, The dwelling place of Gentiles are unclean. They believed that because the Gentiles were such wicked people, all of them, of course, had had some abortion at some point in time. And what they did was they got rid of it through the drainage system within the building or they buried the unborn child on their property. And therefore, because of death present there, that place was unclean. And so we see the hypocrisy there of, of essentially prejudicially judging every Gentile for the practice of some, and therefore refusing on the basis of their tradition, because the Mishnah is not the Scriptures. And so it's their tradition which is judging them and saying, we shall not enter into this place. And so they refuse to enter into the palace of Pilate on these conditions so that they might partake of the Passover, even though they're in the process of killing a man unjustly. This only makes sense when we consider the idolatry of earthly kingdoms. What is happening here is that they are refusing to submit to God's law, but enforcing the traditions of men, as seen in the Mishnah. What Jesus said earlier in Mark 7 is absolutely true of them. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. They have forsaken true evidence to unjustly convict a man, and now they want to celebrate one of the high points of Jewish religious life. They're hypocrites. They're vague about the charges. It's actually kind of funny in a sense that Pilate has asked them for the charges because in order for those Roman soldiers to have gone and arrested Jesus, he had to have approved that. And so here it is. Pilate now, in sort of that insecure, piloty kind of way, has decided, well, I'll make things difficult for them. I'm going to show them who's the boss, that I'm really in charge. And by the way, why did you bring Jesus to me? What has he done? And they are very vague about this. Of course, obviously, why would we bring him here if he wasn't an evildoer? Which is a very vague sort of phrase. 
They are unclear as to the evil which he has done. They do not speak of the blasphemy that they accused him of or any of these things, because why would he care about that? They just want Jesus to die. The Jews were prohibited from exercising the death penalty, except in very rare instances, one of which would be those who entered into, sorry, Gentiles who entered into the temple courts. They found the signs that were there that talked about the death penalty. If a Gentile or an unclean person went beyond the court of the Gentiles into the court of the Jews, it's punishable by death. They could do that. There were instances, of course, of mob violence that took place. We see that uh, with the, the stoning of Stephen okay, in Acts. But they were not supposed to do this. And suddenly they're not resorting to mob violence in the case of Jesus. And this is an important reason, because Jesus had said, of course, that he shall be lifted up. The scriptures indicate, of course, that it is those that are placed upon a pole that are cursed, and Jesus must be placed upon a pole. He must be crucified. So this happens for the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures as well as the words of Jesus with regard to his death. But all of this to them just seems to be some game to get what they want the death of a righteous man. And R.C. succinctly puts it this way, religion without faith is a deadly thing. And that's what they had. They had religion, but they did not have faith in the one true God. And they were basically saying that this it's okay for this man to die so that we are okay. Yesterday was family movie day at the Cavallero household. And we watched Shrek. It's been a while since I'd seen that. And I like how at one moment, at uh, one point, Lord Farquhard is uh, trying to get a knight to go and to defeat the dragon and rescue Lady Fiona because he wants her to be his. So he can become a king. Okay? It's about a kingdom. It's all about his kingdom. And he says to these knights who have fought valiantly against one another, some of you may die, but that's a risk I'm willing to take. (laughs) And that is the mindset of earthly kingdoms, earthly people in power. They're okay if you die to achieve their goals. That's an earthly kingdom. Often we, even as Christians, can be too too prone to compromise our faith in order to get what we want. We are sometimes too willing to sacrifice other people for our benefit. So let's be a little gentle on the Jewish leaders in this moment. So earthly and personal kingdoms compromise truth and righteousness for the sake of power. But let's see Jesus here. Jesus ushers in a kingdom of grace and truth. Pilate kind of goes through the motions here. He didn't get very far with the Jewish officers who who dropped Jesus off beaten and bloody. So he goes in to see Jesus and interview him. 
And so he asks, are you king of the Jews? In other words, he's asking, are you a rival? Are you seeking to take these people, the Jews, and lead an uprising against Caesar, who is represented by moi? He wants to know if Jesus is really a political threat to him. Which, when you look at Jesus at this moment, would be a rather confusing sort of thing, because Jesus looks nothing like a king. He doesn't look like a rebel leader, strong and bold, and he's just a battered, beaten rabbi at this point in time. Jesus asks him if this was the charge he makes or if this is the charge that the Sanhedrin has made against him. Part of what he's getting at here is just as he made with Annas, where are my accusers? I don't see them here. What are you basing this upon, this question, this query that you make toward me? And then he says, Pilate says to him, what have you done? Now, he knows that they hate him so much. He knows that they have said that he's an evildoer. And so Pilate wants to know particularly, specifically, what has he done? There must be some reason that the nation hates you, some reason that these chief priests have hated you, some reason that they have given you over to me. He's asserting his power over Jesus. You've been put into my hands. Why have they given you to me that I might kill you? Sort of ominous here. And here we get to the crux of all of this, where Jesus replies to him that my kingdom is not of this world. The evidence that he provides first off is that, by the way, my disciples aren't fighting for me. There's no one storming the the gates of the praetorium here to deliver me. There was no bloodshed, and what little bloodshed there was I fixed, by the way. Jesus doesn't mention, but still, okay. They're not fighting to deliver me. This My kingdom is not like your kingdom, Pilate. My kingdom is not like that of the Jewish, uh, Jewish leaders, Pilate. It is not of this world, and we must think of this, I believe, in, this, in a similar way as Jesus talked about his disciples and prayed for his disciples. They were in the world, but not of the world. Jesus' kingdom is in the world. It does exist in this world, but it's not of the same character of this world, just as we are not supposed to be of the same character of this world. We influence this world, we interact with this world, but we're not to be like this world. And so his kingdom is not like the kingdoms of the world. It is not marked by the intrigue, by the power plays, by manipulation, deceit, false promises. Just watch any of those debates and see how... Just check off how many times each of them lies. It's astounding. It's not furthered by warfare. 
It's not a geopolitical reality that has borders. There's a, there's a shift in redemption that's taking place. Israel was a geographically defined place, and it's not going to be any more. Because Jesus is going to cross all the borders, so to speak. Ah, his kingdom will be present in every other earthly kingdom but not like that kingdom. One of the things that it marks, that I think of anyway, as I consider this, is going back to John chapter 1, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so two of the defining factors of Jesus' kingdom are grace and truth. Jesus came to bring these to us. God's unmerited favor, grace. Or if you like that acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. Okay, where we get things that we didn't, we don't deserve. We get good things we don't deserve because of what Christ has done. But he also came to bring true knowledge of God because there were, there were many misunderstandings about God and outright falsehoods about God. But we see that Jesus comes to qualify us to enter and enjoy his kingdom despite our sin and rebellion. And we have to think of John 14 in this way. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so, Jesus doesn't come to just bring truth abstract. He is the personification. He is the truth. He brought Himself. And He brings us to Himself. That we might have truth. That we might have life. Because He brings us to the Father. And so, Jesus teaches us the truth about God. He teaches us the truth about ourselves. As Calvin says, you can't know one without the other. And he he teaches us the truth about creation. He speaks reliable words, not empty promises. He is not like the politicians we hear. And so what we see, I think, in all of this is that Christ's kingdom is really a righteous rule where His glory and our good are not in conflict as they are in every other earthly kingdom. Your good is not going to be the same as the glory of the kingdom, unless, of course, you're the king. And there's only one of those. Okay? And so the kingdom of Jesus has broken through in space and time and offers us grace and truth. Thirdly, let us see that those who love truth are those who enter his kingdom. Those who love truth enter his kingdom. So this, this dialogue with Pilate continues. So, your kingdom is not of this world. Pilate's trying to get a handle on exactly what Jesus is saying here. So, you're a king? And Jesus' answer is rather cryptic in a sense. You say, I am a king. 
In other words, he's not a king as Pilate understands king, precisely because his kingdom is not a kingdom as Pilate understands a kingdom. Jesus is, in a sense, resetting his expectations. He's also resetting our expectations because what we want in a leader is often misguided. There's nothing like politics to bring out the worst in people. We see it on display right now in the midst of a an election season where people are engaged in vehement battles on Facebook and everywhere else, in person, over their competing visions of what they think this country should be. But this is a country this is a kingdom Jesus is offering us that is one we it's very different, I guess, in so many ways. But it's one that has begun. It's one that's continuing now. If you're in Christ, you're a part of that kingdom. If you're part of the visible church, you're a part of that kingdom. But it's going to come to fruition, its completion, consummation with the return of Jesus. We see that in 1 Corinthians 15. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And so the the kingdom of Jesus is continuing. It's moving forward. He's subduing his enemies. He's not doing it in a violent fashion. He's not doing it through warfare, but he's doing it through the gospel of peace, bringing people into submission to him willingly to say, you are the king and you are good. And when Jesus has fulfilled his purpose in this, he will hand the kingdom over to the Father at the end of time. And we see a similar phrase in the book of Revelation, the kingdoms of men have become the kingdom of God. God's purpose was completed. But right now we live in this, this, phrase, this phase expressed by Paul in Philippians 1, our citizenship is in heaven. Philippi was one of those places you could be a Roman citizen. You know, it was a citizen state, citizen city. And they made a lot about the fact that they were Roman citizens. And Paul is telling them, don't make a big deal about the fact that you're Roman citizens. If you're a Christian, make a big deal about the fact that you are a citizen of heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. And so the same power that Jesus uses through the proclamation of the Gospel to bring rebellious people into submission to Him, in love to Him, in faith to Him, that same power will be put on display to transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies like His in the resurrection. Can Bernie Sanders do that for you? Can Donald Trump? Cruz? Clinton, none of them can do that. But Jesus can and will. 
as I said, it was inaugurated, begun in his incarnation. It will be consummated in his return, and he will reign forever. It is not like the earthly kingdoms we see that have a period of time and then are gone. Where's Assyria now? Where's Babylon now? Where's Rome now? Where's the British Empire now? Where's America going to be in the not-so-distant future? Where's Russia now? They come and they go, but his continues on. He was born. There's this odd phrase that Jesus brings up. For this purpose I was born For this purpose, I have come into the world. And so these two things are parallel through that construction. We see this. He was born and he has come into the world. We see that he was born. He is fully man, but he is not like us because he has come into this world in his birth. In a sense, that's different than us. He's setting himself apart from us. It's talking about his preexistence. What we see in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we see in verse 14, and the Word became flesh. He is not like Caesar. Caesar's going to die. Someone else will take his place. No one will ever have to take the place of Jesus. Because he lives forever to save for the uttermost, to the uttermost, his people. So what's going on here? We see that Jesus here, he came to bear witness to the truth. Jesus, who is the truth, testifies to the truth about God, about ourselves. And there's that sense of, can you handle the truth? Pilate doesn't even know what truth is. He can't. He can't handle the truth at all. What is it that keeps people from embracing the kingdom of Jesus? I think ultimately it boils down to two things. Everything else is just a manifestation of these two things. And the first of these two things is pride. That's the first We think that we know better than God about what we need and about what is right. That our understanding of a kingdom is better than his understanding of a kingdom. The second thing, well, before I get to the second one, this is manifested clearly in Psalm 2. When we see the kings of the earth set themselves And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed or Messiah or Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Pride is the spirit that works in all people to be autonomous, to be free from God's rule and bring destruction upon themselves. The second thing which is connected to this is fear that people generally suspect that God isn't really for them, that God does not have their best interests in mind. And so we see both of these taking place as Eve 
way back in the Garden of Eden, sits and looks at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent has already kind of gotten her mind these ideas that God is keeping something from her, something good from her. And in her pride, she thinks, I deserve that. I shouldn't have to depend upon God to tell me what is good and what is evil. I should be able to determine for myself what is good and what is evil. And so I want to partake of this fruit that I might know this apart from God. Secondly, there's the fear. If I don't partake of this fruit which looks tasty, she's been staring at this thing for a while, Okay, It looks good to eat. If I don't eat this, I'm going to miss out on something good. And so it's a question, questioning of God's goodness and love for His people. That's why a lot of people don't want to be Christians. I'm going to miss out on life. That's what they fear. Other kingdoms, as I mentioned, their glory competes with the good, our good. But we see in Christ's kingdom that there is no such conflict between God's glory and our good. Because his law represents not a way to control us and manipulate us, but to pursue our good. He wraps his glory up in our good. He glorifies himself by being good towards his people. We don't have to be filled with pride. We don't have to be filled with fear. We can trust Him. He's not like all the rest who try to sell us something. This is confirmed by Jesus' substitutional death, the one He's about to undergo in the Gospel of John that we're studying. It confirms the Father's love. It confirms that the Father has a heart of love towards His people. Jesus is not twisting the arm of the Father. He's been sent by the Father. He's not trying to make the Father love us. He's sent because the Father loves us. And because of that, He can be trusted. His kingdom is a good kingdom, a great kingdom that benefits all of its subjects, just not the 1%. We see this in places like Psalm 16. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. We're afraid that the fullness of joy is somewhere else. Not in the presence of God. At your right hand are misery forevermore. No, pleasures forevermore. We see... Romans 14, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy 
and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes people say, why do you talk about joy, Steve? Because the Bible talks about joy. Because it's a kingdom. And one of the defining, not the only defining mark, but one of them is joy in the Holy Spirit. But also righteousness and peace. There can be no joy without righteousness and peace. And there's none of that, either of them, without the work of the Holy Spirit applying the work of Jesus Christ. One last text. Hebrews 12. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, like Rome, like the British Empire, and all the rest. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so, His kingdom is enduring. It cannot be shaken. It cannot be toppled. It withstands no matter what pressure earthly kingdoms place upon it, and it actually topples the earthly kingdoms. But it's about righteousness, joy, and peace that cannot be shaken. So, brothers and sisters, the political season reminds us of all that is not right in our world, and there's plenty that's not right in our world. Okay? But it's often not right in part because of the kingdoms that are in conflict, not just between nations, but within nations. The rich and the powerful want you to sacrifice for them. They want you to serve their interests, not your own interests. Jesus is a very different king. Jesus is a king who served our interests, as it says in Philippians 2, who one who died in our place so that we could have grace, so that we could have truth, so we could have joy and peace and righteousness that we all lacked and we couldn't gain any other way but through Him dying for us to gain it for us. So Jesus considered our interests as well as His own. He gets glory by giving these good things to us for our good. Let us rejoice. Let us receive. Let us await the consummation, the final fulfillment in Christ. Let's pray. Father, these political seasons weary my soul. And that's good because then I long for Jesus to return more than I usually do. And so, Father, stir that up in us. Stir up that longing in us, a longing that cannot be satisfied with winning the next election, thinking that everything will be okay if our guy or gal gets in. But put our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was before Him thought little of the shame of the cross. purchased a kingdom that cannot be broken, that can't be taken over by men. There can be no usurper. 
a kingdom that can sustain us with joy even in the midst of affliction, of hardship. Father, help us to hear the call of this kingdom through the course of our days. Help us to continue to give ourselves over to that kingdom. Put to death our pride and fear that keep us from fully giving ourselves over to it that give us that sense of reservation, that mercenary spirit that sometimes captures our soul so that we can be wholeheartedly Jesus's in the midst of this world that's torn in so many different directions. Father, we can't do that. We're powerless to do that. But I ask that you, who lack no power, would do that. And we ask this in Jesus' name because of His goodness, because of His righteousness, because of His merit, because we have none. And we ask this because we have nowhere else to go but to Him who has the words of eternal life. Amen.